I also take heart in watching all of these clinic startups with the huge success and trajectory that that like Oak Street or Iora or ChenMed or Cano Health or most importantly Village MD and the billion dollar partnership they just struck in May with Walgreens you know they're going to roll out 5 to 700 new senior focused clinics in these underserved communities around the Walgreens stores i mean i think there's going to be a huge uh, effort and billions of dollars invested in the next couple of years just in trying to address medical underservice and trying to bring those resources into the communities that need them most. The thing I get a little worried about is, you know, we've already got a a primary care shortage in this country among physicians. I think what you're going to see is uh, a big effort as well to help allied health professionals practice at the top of their license. This is the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns. Welcome to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. I am your host, Tricia Talbot. As a healthcare real estate advisor to providers and investors, the best solutions occur when the two collaborate together as partners in delivering better patient care. Providers can deliver care to their patients when and where they need it, and investors realize the returns to build and manage facilities. We explore changes in medicine and wellness, the future of healthcare, and using real estate as a strategic and financial tool. Today's interview is the second part of a two-part episode featuring John Gorman, founder and chairman of Nightingale Partners, the first Opportunity Zone fund to invest in social determinants of health interventions with health insurers, local government, and provider organizations. Last week, he shared his background that began with a career in Washington and during the Clinton administration focused on health care policy for the medically underserved and Medicare and Medicaid managed programs. This week, we focus on where he anticipates primary health care is heading, how his company is a solution to reduce health care costs that tax the system and revitalize underserved communities. One example we're seeing right now You know, as I said, I serve on the board of Henry Ford Health System in Detroit. And for instance, we just made a major investment in pop-up acute respiratory distress clinics across Metro Detroit as just an off-taker of folks who would otherwise be coming to our overcrowded emergency rooms uh, when they have COVID symptoms or they think they have COVID symptoms. So literally sending out pop-up clinics where we'll have respiratory therapists and others on site to divert them away from nursing homes that are 99% capacity. That's a really smart innovation in place-based healthcare that addresses a pressing access need. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that kind of stuff. I think right now with nursing homes just absolutely inundated with COVID and overwhelmed, uh, I mean, look, nursing homes are about to get gutted like a fish in this country. I mean, that is the one institution, nobody wants to be in it and nobody wants to pay for it. And now it's crawling with COVID. So I think you're going to see huge place-based investments, Tricia. I think you're going to see an explosion in small group homes, uh, taking single or double family uh, housing and converting them into small group homes for elders Uh, for the housing insecure and for the disabled with, say, an on-site community health worker to help coordinate their services. 
I think you're going to see an explosion in adult and child daycare, especially adult daycare. I mean, I don't know if, uh, I think I'm probably a lot older than you are, but in my day, you know, in the late sixties, there was a kindergarten or a child care center on every freaking corner in Detroit. I think you're going to start to see adult daycare centers popping up like mushrooms. And I think you're going to see a whole lot more emphasis on community-based and home-based settings. So a lot more emphasis on home modifications so that we can help seniors and the disabled stay in their homes longer, safely, and a whole lot more emphasis around housing and, and rental and utility supports, you know, especially when the, the eviction moratorium is set to expire on January 1, and we're looking at potentially 8 to 12 million people being evicted in first quarter, you know, a, a real Marshall plan around how do we keep people in their homes safely longer, I think is going to be a big priority. Well, and I, and I think some some people that are in nursing homes would have preferred to have some sense of independence, but have support as well. But you've touched on um, the pandemic effect of nursing homes, but also do you feel that, and you might be getting calls already of, of, you know, the pandemic has uncovered a huge gap in healthcare awareness, prevention, and services in lower income communities. I mean, I think the statistics show that that they are being hit the hardest and that's not, not a secret. Your payers and providers, health systems, are they saying, hey, you know, we need to, you know, there's likely to be another pandemic. How do we get ahead of the curve? And, you know, coming to you, would, would that be a solution? That's certainly a solution. Uh, I also take heart in watching all of these clinic startups with the huge success and trajectory that, that like Oak Street or Iora or ChenMed or Cano Health or most importantly, uh, Village MD. And the billion-dollar partnership they just struck in May with Walgreens, you know, they're going to roll out five to 700 new senior-focused clinics in these underserved communities around the Walgreens stores. I mean, I think there's going to be a huge uh, effort and billions of dollars invested in the next couple of years just in trying to address medical underservice and trying to bring those resources into the communities that need them most. The thing I get a little worried about is, you know, we've already got a, a primary care shortage in this country among physicians. Uh, I think what you're going to see is a big effort as well to help allied health professionals practice at the top of their license. And you're just going to see this being a full employment act for registered nurse and nurse practitioners yeah, and yeah. physician assistants. Physician assistants. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that. Yeah. Everything that we think of as primary care today, Tricia is not going to be provided by a doc 10 years from now. It's going to be yeah. provided, you know, these allied health professionals at the top of their license. Absolutely. So talk to me about um, the shared savings business model that you provide. We knew that we wanted to make external capital available to the plans so that they could offer these, you know, these critically needed life-saving, cost-saving interventions and benefits to their members. But we also knew we were going to have to find a way to repay our investors. I mean, these Republican billionaires in our syndicate, you know, are sitting here tapping their foot uh, and waiting for that um, that 10-year investment horizon on the, uh, the Opportunity Zone investment to play out. So I think when we looked at how do we then recoup this money, you know, we realized very early that while we're generating three to eight X in savings, 
off of these investments, why don't we just share in some of those savings that we help create? That, you know, we're making investments in critical services and infrastructure that the plan wasn't able or willing to do itself up until that point. So that our model basically is when we partner with the plan, we're going to split those savings 50-50 that we help create starting in year three of the investment through year 10 of the opportunity zone window. Uh, We don't want to start taking uh, or accruing any of those savings before that because we want these interventions to, to play out and give them a chance to work. But then we start accruing and so the first uh, dollars in the waterfall go to the investors, and then the next round of dollars in the waterfall go to expanding that program and that intervention to serve more and more people. Because one of the first things you know about a shared savings arrangement, Tricia, is that you get a, to a point of diminishing returns pretty quickly. So it serves our model, it serves our clients, and it serves our interests that we're continually expanding the population that we're serving. So that we, we continually have split <laughs> and repay these Republican billionaires. So, But I think that the diminishing returns, because I think once you start getting the primary needs, then you can start having like a specialist come in on a day, you know? And, you, yeah. and so I, I think there's always, you, you just start innovating instead of, you know, you know, you say, okay, we're going to have, you know, a dentist to come in and do some reconstructive surgery or, you know, just preventative care. We're going to have, you know, a cardiologist come in and continue to improve upon the healthcare that you're already providing because you have the system in place now. Now you just get the people to come in and they don't have to be there full time, but you continue to serve the needs. You know, I I just make the point in that the diminishing returns often come from the effect of that initial intervention. You know, when you've got a homeless elder, you know, homelessness is known to be a four to 10 X multiplier of healthcare costs, especially for elderly uh, patients. So, you know, you'll see an elderly homeless person cost upwards of uh, 130 to 150 grand a year. But then the second you get them into stable housing, you remove that four to 10 X multiplier. They're still going to be very expensive, very high risk, vulnerable patients. But that's when you see the very steep cliff in the savings that you create. Now, it's not gone completely away, of course, but it has been diminished. So the point is, especially in homelessness interventions, our interests are to serve more people year over year to offset that diminishing savings that happens on that first intervention. But you're exactly right. Once you've got a community health worker assigned to them, she can then start arranging a dental care visit, which Medicare does not cover. And that is a huge source of healthcare costs for seniors uh, and and the like, as you pointed out. So yeah, you got it. But there's also, you know, other things that happen. I mean, if you start serving these people, you're going to inspire kids to uh, well, hopefully they'll be healthy enough because that, you know, your first example, a diabetic homeless person, well, a diabetic child can't really pay attention in school, but if they get health services, then they can go to school. They probably feel good going to see these healthcare service providers and then they themselves go and then you have them come back to serve their own community. I mean, it can be kind of like this whole circle of life kind of dynamic. Virtuous. Exactly. Yeah. The virtuous circle of just generally economic development, as you pointed out earlier, Tricia. I mean, one of the more meaningful things we do in all of our investments as as OZ investors is that we have to have an emphasis around economic development and improving the economic health of an underserved community as well. So as community health workers are the linchpin of all of our interventions, by nature, we are creating hundreds of jobs in almost all the projects that we get into 
not just in community health workers, but COVID contact tracers, folks that are doing meal preparation and delivery, uh, the drivers and the maintenance personnel that are transporting people to appointments or to, uh, to a grocery store, the personal care attendants that uh, we send into people's homes so that they can stay there longer and stay out of a nursing home, the home modifications guys who now get a flood of business building ramps and bumpers and doing mold abatement for people with COPD. Um, job creation is a very big part of what we do and always one of the most impactful things that we do to improve the health of a community is just give people more money and more opportunity. Uh, and then that's when you start seeing Maslow's hierarchy <laughs> get met down here and then they move up. So now they're active participants in their care and in, in the economic health of their community as well. Absolutely. Well, have I missed anything that you wanted to touch on with, with Nightingale Partners? I feel like we've talked I, a lot, uh, but is there anything specific that I've missed? No, you got it, Trisha. You know, this kind of, this kind of thing, look, people like you, you got a real job. We just sit around and think this up all day. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a novel concept and uh, takes people about four or five times hearing it before they get it, but you got it on the first shot. So thank you for that. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Well, now we're going to move into the Q&A to get to know a little bit about you, because as you know, people like to do business with people that they know or feel comfortable with. So uh, what is your first job? My first job was uh, sweeping the floor of the barbershop in my neighborhood in Detroit. Uh, when I started uh, preschool and I was coming home, both my parents were you know, obviously working. So I was, I was six or seven. But I was getting my ass beat because I was like the only white kid in about a four mile radius. And I found the only safe place in my hood was the local barbershop. So I started hanging out at the barbershop. And one of those days, one of the guys got up out of his chair and he said, son, you're tall enough to hold a broom. Hold a broom. <laughs> now here's what you do with it. And if you got time to lean, you got time to clean. So go ahead. So I started sweeping up the barbershop. That was my first job. Oh, that's an awesome story. Uh, what would you be doing for a living if you hadn't got involved in healthcare policy and then investing? Oh, I'd be a screenwriter. <laughs> um, I actually have done a fair amount of screenwriting from, you know, 22 years of Gorman Health Group living on planes and hotels. I was doing 200,000 miles a year. So I, you know, I, I wrote a bunch of scripts. I sold four of them. I'd love to get back to that. I have a teenage daughter, so I haven't written in years, but I always told my wife when I was starting Gorman Health Group that this was just to finance my screenwriting career down the road. And uh, I long thought that if I ever go back for a master's, it's going to be an MFA in film studies. And, uh, <laughs> you know, someday I'll get there after There's I'm done. There's still time. There's still time. Yeah, I'm going with Nightingale. I still got plenty of gas left in the tank. <laughs> What or who are you reading or listening to right now for news, information, or inspiration? Oh, uh, well, for news, I'm a, I'm a Twitter fiend, I will confess. Um, so I follow, you know, all of my, my favorite uh, journalists here in D.C. A lot of them are health reporters. I love, uh, I love Bruce uh, Japson. is wonderful at Forbes. I love Dan Diamond over at Politico. I'm a huge consumer of MSNBC and actually know a lot of folks uh, that are on the show that are, are health uh, contributors and, and those that have comment on the government. Some folks I used to work with on the Hill or in the Clinton administration, for instance. For uh, entertainment, 
like I said, Trisha, I got teenage girls, so it's, it's all Taylor Swift and Dua Lipa these days. <laughs> How old are your girls? Uh, 17 and 16, and Taylor's got a new album coming out tomorrow, <laughs> so I know it's going to be played in my house all freaking weekend. But, uh, you know, but I'm also in a band and, um, you know, like I, I said at the top, we had a, we had our weekly jam session socially distanced last night. So I listened to a lot of music, probably the greatest influence on my life, aside from my mother, while I'm a son of Detroit, my heart is in Minneapolis with Prince. Yeah. Um, but I grew up on Motown, man. I grew up on Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and the Supremes. And that's the music of my childhood. And it's a lot of the music that we in the band play today. So love, love just R&B and soul music is where my heart's at. Well, and, you know, a lot of music has come from that, that kind of music. And, you know, the kids today, they, they don't understand that, you know, the roots of some of this come from, you know, the, yeah. the, the old school. The old no, school. they actually... I trained the girls very early on to listen to old school music so that they knew where it all came. And we listened to everything except country music, which if you're from Detroit, you just can't <laughs> just like fingernails on a blackboard. Um, but um, everything else we made them listen to and, and they have very rich listening histories now. Um, and they're real students of music as I'd hope they would be um, as far as books and reading stuff. I don't, read a lot of politics books i will confess just because i live and breathe it every day but i gotta say one of the books that really touched me this year was called the orphan master's son which was just an incredible book i'd never read anything like it about uh, a north korean orphan who becomes a spy for the north korean military abducting Japanese people in Japan and bringing them back to North Korea for ransom. And the journey of discovery this guy goes on behind the curtain in North Korea. I had never read anything like it. Uh, it was as unique as um, probably my favorite book of all time, which was Life of Pi. Uh, oh, I love that book. Yeah in the uh, lifeboat with the tiger trying to survive a shipwreck. Yeah. Amazing reading. Well, I, I read that book um, on the plane to my honeymoon and it was incredible. It's a page turner. You couldn't put it down. And I haven't watched yeah. the movie yet because I, I feel like the movies, like I want to be prepared to, to either be incredibly impressed or somewhat disappointed when I watch it. Oh, the movie was beautiful. It's directed by Ang Lee. Did they do a good job? They did a wonderful job with with a book that was almost impossible to put on screen, and Ang Lee found a way to do it. And in a in a very beautiful, I mean, I was really touched by the film. Nothing compares to that book. The film was wonderful, and I'd, I'd really recommend that to you. It was it's a great watch. I'll put it on my list. So, what is one thing you do every day for healthy self care? One thing I do every day for healthy self care. I listen to a lot of music and I rumble with my pit bull Loki. Um, <laughs> my retirement project was to rescue a pit bull. So I got Loki, my little man, and he is uh, 75 pounds and he's just the sweetest little guy. <laughs> and um, I, I just freaking love that dog, Trisha. And uh, he's just brought a light to my life, especially in this pandemic. 
and especially with two teenage girls being locked up at home with. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, is that Loki after, um, the, in Thor? Yeah. Loki (laughs) was, uh, Thor's adopted brother who was the God of mischief. And my, my dog is very well named. (laughs) Oh, it's Oh my gosh. That actor did such a good job with that character. Yeah. So are leaders born or trained? That's an interesting question. Are leaders born or trained? I think they're trained. I know a few people that were born with leadership skills. Um, I think they're learned and they're learned the hard way. Um, You can read about stuff and you can study what are good leadership principles. But at the end of the day, I think what makes a good leader is the number of scars. (laughs) I've got one of a man twice my age. I think it's, it's largely learned for my part. I'm a behavioral economist by training. So, you know, behavioral economics is really about the science of incentives. And so I've always applied that to the offices I've worked at in the companies that I've run in recognizing, you know, three basic principles of, of leadership of people who are doing complex tasks like we do in healthcare, right? And the science shows us that when tasks are simple, monetary rewards work great. So when my daughters were little, I told them, clear your plate from the table, scrape it into the disposal, stick it in the dishwasher, do that all five nights, you'll get your allowance on Friday. Okay, daddy, and they did it. But when tasks are complex, Tricia, monetary rewards often get in the way of better performance. That the things that smart people doing complicated things, the incentives work totally different. The number one thing that smart people like my partner Jordan over here doing complex things value the most is autonomy. Yeah. Smart people doing hard things just want to be left alone. You know, you don't have to have a heavy hand. I have a very light touch in all my management stuff and in all my companies. And I try to foster a culture where the, where the hierarchy feels very flat. Just this morning, we did our year-end reviews for everybody. And we do a 360 review where the underlings and everybody else reviews everybody else. And some of the younger people in the company were feeling really anxious about, you mean I got to do a review on the CEO and the chairman? And they're thinking about their job security. And I was like, your only job security that you got to worry about is if you're not forthcoming in this thing, because everybody's opinion matters. Everybody's perspectives have value. The second thing that smart people doing complicated things relate to and are incentivized by is mastery. Smart people just want to keep getting better at the work that they're doing. So in all my companies, if somebody said they wanted to go get a certification or they wanted to get an advanced degree or just a degree, I'd say, okay, we'll pay for that. Yeah. That will keep them to you forever. Yeah. If you can grow professionally and personally. And third is sense of purpose. Smart people doing tough things just want to believe that the work that they're doing has meaning beyond what's just in front of them at the moment. And so, I mean, that just comes with the nature of the work of what we're doing here at Nightingale and trying to, to help improve the healthcare for poor people. But I think that's very important for leaders to learn is um, you'll motivate people better by making it more relatable to the cause that it is that you're engaged in. So yeah. that's what I learned in behavioral economy and 
what it's told me as an executive and how I apply it in leadership, if that's worth anything. <laughs> it is. It's absolutely worth something. I think there's all different types of leaders, but I do think that especially the young people coming up, um, you know, they're going to be incredibly aware because of their ability to use technology, have information at their fingertips. And, but that's why the, you can't put these kids in a cubicle from eight to five. Like the, you, you can't do it. It's going to be impossible for them. I mean, there's not even any need to do that anymore. I right. Mean, exactly. On the way of the dinosaur now. Right. Exactly. But I think so. It really is. You know, what I see in this generation and I'm, thank you for pointing it out is this generation collaboration comes much more easily. Yeah. I see many fewer lone wolves among the young folks in our organization that they they get the teamwork, makes the dream work. They play well with others for the most part. Uh, <laughs> you know, we've got a couple of young New Yorkers among us who love to argue, but you know, that that's okay. As long as we're keeping it civil. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I, that I think it really bodes well for this next generation that, you know, if it's work, it's collaboration. And I, that's something I've really seen that's kind of refreshing out of uh, certainly out of my kids and young people in our organization. Yeah, it'd be it'd be great to uh, walk beside them and see what they do, huh? <laughs> I'm enjoying just watching the day to day here. I mean, some oh, of the biggest leaders yeah. in our company are folks who are 26, 29, and doing unbelievable work that goes way beyond their years. It's great. Yeah, it's incredible. It's it's awesome to watch, and I think I think again, there's going to be a COVID effect where you're going to find a resourcefulness come out of this that we couldn't have predicted and that's going to be and resiliency right yeah i think if this pandemic's brought anything to this generation it's going to be resiliency and learning how to deal with the anxieties that this event has created among so many of us you know absolutely john this has been a, an awesome interview we could sit and talk for hours but uh thank you so much for your time really enjoyed it thanks so much for having me on I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers, Properties, and Performance podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.